Let me pray for us. Lord God, you know my inadequacy. But we know that your word is not limited by our weakness. And so I ask, Lord, that you would speak to the hearts of each and every one of us, that you would speak to me, and that the words that you want each and every one of us to hear, would you burn it into the depths of our soul? And for the words that I speak that are not from you, Lord, would you cause it to fall by the wayside? And in all things, Lord, with everything be done for the glory of your name. We pray all this in your name. Amen. I'm going to give you a puzzle. And uh, if you have your piece of paper, take out your piece of paper and do this puzzle. There are six matchsticks here. And on your piece of paper, draw them out in such a way that you form four equal triangles. All right, four equal triangles from six matchsticks. I'll give you about two minutes to try this out. So, and you can't cheat, all right? You can't cheat by breaking the matchsticks or whatever. So six matchsticks, and you're supposed to form four equilateral, four equal triangles. All right, so I'll give you about a minute or so. Have you tried it? Maybe about half a minute more. All right. Or you'll think through it. Remember, it has to be four equal triangles out of six matchsticks. Guys, got it? Got it? No? No? Give up? <laughs> One of the things, like, if, if you perceive the solution and you start on it two dimensionally, you would never be able to get the solution. And the solution is actually this where you have to form a pyramid of it. It's not a two-dimensional problem, but rather a three-dimensional problem. So if you perceive it straight away as a problem, it's two being two-dimensional, you never be able to get the solution. On the contrary, you need a fresh perspective to view the problem differently. Now, psychologists call this phenomena fixation which is the inability to try to see a problem from a fresh perspective. Once we incorrectly represent the problem wrongly, 
it is very difficult to change our thought processes to approach the issue from a fresh perspective. We are unable to have a different perspective because we are so fixed. We are so fixed in our former perspective that we can't see the situation differently. And it is the same principle also in the spiritual dimension, that we are unable to see things from a spiritual perspective because we have lived our lives so long in the physical world that the spiritual world seems so abstract. We have the problem of fixation. And that's why Paul, in today's passage, he tells us that we need to make it a habit to pray for a renewed perspective of the gospel. We need to make it a habit to pray for a renewed perspective of the gospel. The prayer that we're taking a look at today begins as this. For this reason, I do not cease remembering you in my prayers. I'm taking out the Thanksgiving section here because we are a little bit short on time. But the prayer goes like this. For this reason, I do not cease remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Notice that the prayer begins with, for this reason. What reason? And when Paul says for this reason, he is pointing back to what he had written earlier in verse 3 to 14. And in verse 3 to 14, Paul praises God because of the spiritual blessings that he has given us, that we are blessed because we have been chosen and elected by God the Father. We are blessed because we are redeemed in God the Son. And we are blessed because we have been sealed with God the Spirit. And in the center of this blessing, Paul tells us this thing, this mystery of his will, in terms of verse, in verse 8, 9, and 10, and that God had made known to us the mystery of his will. Now, the mystery language is something like a puzzle, and it's a puzzle in that it cannot be cracked. It is password protected with the highest level of encryption. You cannot know it, you cannot hack it, unless someone tells it to you. But Paul tells us that the mystery, the puzzle of God's will has been made known to us. And God's will is ultimately to sum up all things under the headship of Christ. And that God is uniting all things under the headship of Christ. And Paul tells us that we have been blessed with all of this. Blessed with the knowledge of what God is doing and blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. But you ask yourself, what good is that? What good is that? Paul tells us, firstly, you know, that blessed be the God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you view that? Do you feel that you have indeed been blessed with every spiritual blessing? You ask yourself, what good are these spiritual blessings when I still have to pay my mortgage bills? I know that Jesus loves me. Or your high school daughter comes to you and says, I know that Jesus loves me, but what good is that when no boy in high school will even talk to me and look at me? What good is that with all of these spiritual blessings? And Paul tells us it is all 
very good. It's all very good because the gospel is a blessings of God. But all too often, we consider the gospel just as an abstract concept, an abstract concept that is locked away in the spiritual realm that has no relevance to us in our physical world itself. But Paul tells us that we need a fresh perspective of the gospel. You see, we have the problem of fixation itself, that we have lived so long in this physical world that the spiritual realities have been blind to, that we are blind to it. And so Paul therefore prays for a new perspective for us. And this is what Paul prays for. What does Paul pray for? I say, I do not cease remembering you in my prayers. And then in verse 17 to 18, he gives the content of his prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Do you see all the cognitive words there, the words of knowing? Wisdom, revelation, knowledge, eyes of your heart enlightened. When Paul prays that, the, that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation and to knowledge of him, Paul is praying that God would give them a special manifestation of the spirit so that they would know God. But in the context of chapter 1, knowing God is knowing the blessings that he has blessed us, when, that Paul has just talked about in verses 3 to 14. At the same time, knowing God is also knowing his will. And he has read told us what God's will is, and that God's will is to unify all things under the headship of Christ. In essence, Paul is praying that we would truly know the gospel, that God is at work in reconciling the world to himself, and that this gospel itself would change our perspective, not only just our minds, but it would change our affections it will change our thought processes so that we see all, all of the world through the lens of the gospel itself. And so, essence, when Paul prays that God would give them a spirit of wisdom, Paul is praying that his readers would understand what God has done for them in Christ. Paul therefore prays that they were a fresh perspective, that they would know the truths of the gospel, that it would impact how they view their lives. Paul's prayer becomes a model for us. And that Paul's prayer then becomes a model for us that we have to make it a habit to pray for a renewed perspective of the gospel. And then the rest of the prayer that we have in verses 18 to 23, Paul then lays out what is the purpose of this renewed perspective. And he also tells us what is the basis that we know this gospel perspective is true and is reliable. So let's take a look at the, taking a look at the purpose and also the basis for this renewed perspective. First, taking a look at the purpose. God's purpose for this renewed perspective of the gospel is that we might know the hope, the worth, and the power we have through the gospel. We start with the first thing here. In verse 18 to 19, that you may know, firstly, what is the hope to which he has called you? Secondly, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And thirdly, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? When Paul begins that you may know 
it's not just saying that you may just have some information in your head, but rather he's praying that you would be transformed by this knowledge, and that ultimately ye are just not only informed, but that we are transformed in the core of our being, and that we would truly know that there is hope for the future, that there is worth despite our past, despite your past, and that there is power for you in the present through the gospel. And so we'll take a look at the first thing, hope here. Paul writes that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. For those of us who feel hopeless, Paul reminds us of the hope to which God has called them. This hope here, the content of this hope, it's not so bad that you get into the college of your dreams. It's not so that you will find a spouse. Paul is here saying that although those hopes are important, that it's something that is much grander, something that is much more epic. And that is the hope of the gospel, the hope that God is at work in reconciling the world to himself, the hope that is nothing less than the new heavens and the new earth, the hope that you would appear with Christ in glory, the hope that you would be at the marriage supper of the Lamb itself. And this hope here is secure. It is not the kind of hope that, you know, I just hope that it doesn't rain today. Or I hope that my shoes, the shoes that I bought, they last for several years, you know. That's not that kind of hope. You remember several weeks ago, uh, L.L. Bean put up this advertisement that they're changing their policy. They used to have a very generous guarantee, you know, that, and people began to take advantage of it. So that if, even if somebody bought their boots at a flea market, and after wearing it for about 10 years, they would send it in to get a new pair, all right? And so that because the warranty got a little bit abused, L.L. Bean decided to change their guarantee so there's no longer a lifetime guarantee but to a one-year limited guarantee here. And so decided to do that. Now, how do we know that our hope is secure? Because the hope of our salvation is not guaranteed by a limited one-year guarantee. The hope of our salvation is also not guaranteed by a lifetime guarantee. But the hope of our salvation is guaranteed by an eternal guarantee. Because God is the one who makes this promise to us. God is the one who controls the future, and he makes this guarantee to us. And you ask yourself, what good is that to me? And Paul says, everything. Everything. Because it tells us what our future destination is going to be. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes for me when I watch movies, some movies just get too intense. So I need to go and look at the spoiler alert so that I could just continue watching the movies. All right? Otherwise, I just get freaked out here. <laughs> and sometimes our lives are just too intense. And when our lives are too intense, we have to remind ourselves that God has given us the final spoiler alert of our lives. That God has given us the final spoiler alert of our lives and that our future destiny is secure. On the journey of our lives, some of our lives will zig, some will zag, some will go around in circles, 
But for believers, we will all end at the final destination, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will all get there at the same time. We will all get there on time. Our final destination is secure. And that, and that should give us hope for the future. And the next thing is that Paul tells us of a worth. For those of us who feel worthless, for those of us who feel that we are a failure because of past mistakes, or feel worthless because we have been abused, violated, assaulted in the past, Paul prays that you may know what are the riches of his, that is, of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. And what that means is that Paul is telling us that Paul prays that believers would know that they, the saints, God's holy people, are the rich and glorious inheritance. In other words, you all are God's crown jewels itself. You all are God's glorious inheritance. How does that make you feel? You all know that crown jewels, have you all seen them? If you all go to like the Tower of London, you could see the crown jewels there, right? And you go in this escalator, and you want to linger on long, you know, they can't move along, move along, <laughs> move along. You can't stay there for too long because everybody wants to see it. It is precious. It's protected. And God's telling you that you all are his crown jewels. You all are just as precious to him. How does that make you feel? What good is that to you? You know, when we feel worthless because of events that happened in the past, God tells us that because of the gospel perspective, we need to look a little bit further back in time. Because of the gospel perspective, we need to look a little further back in time. You know, when we write our stories, when we write our biographies, we begin with the day that we are born and that we end with the day that we die. But that when God writes a story with the gospel, he doesn't begin at those endpoints, but he begins it in eternity past, and he ends it in eternity future. Remember, we have seen how God has broken the bounds, the temporal bounds of a story by saying that our future is secure. And so in that, he moves the, he moves the temporal goalposts of our lives so that it's not done end when we die, but it ends in the marriage supper of the Lamb. But at the same time, he also moves the temporal goalposts so that our story doesn't begin when we are born, but our story begins even before the creation of the world. I mean, you take a look at verse 4. What does it say? God chose us before the creation of the world. God chose us before the creation of the world. God chose you and I in eternity past. How does it make you feel? Now, if you remember that when you were in elementary school or junior high, you all remember in PE, none of you liked to be the last ones that were chosen, right? When they are starting to form their teams, who likes to be chosen last? Because if you are chosen last, it shows that you are either not so good, you know, not an A player or whatever. 
And God is telling us that He chose us before the creation of the world. God didn't choose us just in the middle when you were born itself. God didn't choose you and think that, well, I really need somebody else to fill out my team, all right? And I'm not so sure about Pastor Craig, you know, that he could be just dead wood. But, you know, I just need somebody to fill out my quota, so I'll just choose him. Is that the way how God chooses us? No, because God chose us before the creation of the world, in eternity past. How does that make you feel? How does that make you feel? Because you are worth something, that you are the richest of God's glorious inheritance, and that he has chosen you in eternity past. So God wants you to know the hope of the calling, the worth of the riches of his glorious inheritance, that means how much worth you have. Next, he wants you to know the power. So that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, toward us who believe. And so for those of us who feel powerless, who feel tired, who feel frustrated, who feel trapped, Paul prays that they would know God's incomparably great power that is found in the gospel. And see, the gospel is more than just facts. Yes, yes, the gospel is facts. But ultimately, the gospel is power. The gospel mediates power. It mediates God's power so that we are able to live lives that are transformed for the glory of God. There's a movie that came out two years ago called Manchester by the Sea. And it's a heartbreaking story of a man who lost everything. He lost his three children in a fire one night when he got drunk and he didn't put the cover in front of the fireplace and the house burned down. His wife left him as a result of that. And so that he then moves away. He leaves the city of Manchester because he is just grief-stricken by what has happened. He wants to forget the past. But then his brother, who still lives in that city, dies. And in his will... He leaves his son, or this person's Lee's nephew, basically having Lee serve as a guardian. And so he tries to go back into the city of Manchester itself. He tries to reintegrate back into the life of the city, but he finds that he can't. He gets into fights in the bar. He is stuck with grief itself. And so when the nephew, when Patrick asks him, you know, why can't you stay? And Lee just breaks down. He says, I can't beat it. I can't beat it. I'm sorry. And here is a person who can't beat what has been happening in his life. He can't beat the pain of going back to his hometown. He can't beat the pain of not being able to reconnect with his former wife the pain of the death of his three children. He can't beat his own anger, and he can't beat his own demons itself. What has the gospel to do with our powerlessness? Everything. Because Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God not only to get us into heaven itself, but it's also the power of God to live changed lives. 
the gospel enables us to be set free from the grip of sin and from the grip of the devil itself. And so the gospel gives us the power to live changed lives. Changed lives not for our own glory, but ultimately for the glory of God. And but you ask yourself, how can I be sure that this is possible? Because this is what God wants. Because that is God's intention. He wants all of us to be conformed to the image of his Son. And Paul also says that he who began a good work at you will bring it to completion until the day when Christ returns again. And so therefore we can be sure of this power to live changed lives here. And so in this part of this section here, the purpose of this gospel perspective is so that you may know in the core of your being, not superficially, but it impacts your heart. It impacts your feelings. It impacts your affections. That you truly know that there's hope for the future. That you truly know that you have worth despite your past. And that you truly know that there is power for the present. You ask yourself, how do I know all this is true? What is the basis for this? And Paul tells us then, in verses 19 to 23, the basis for all of this is because God's reconciling work has already begun in Christ. God's reconciling work has already begun in Christ. And let me just read through this section here. He says that the power that we have here, that is according to the working of his great might, that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What is the evidence that we have of God's power? Paul tells us that the evidence of God's power is seen in the person of Jesus, that God raised Jesus from the dead. God seated Jesus at his right hand. That means it is at a privileged position and that Jesus shares in the same authority and power of God. And that he, Jesus is seated above every spiritual power and above every name that is named. When you take a look at that phrase, the name that is named, that was just a way of trying to, in the ancient Near East, when you try to invoke the power of the Spirit or to harness the power of the Spirit, you call on the name of this person, name of that God itself. And here Paul is telling us that Jesus is above every kind of spiritual power that you could ever imagine in trying to get help from. Jesus is above every spiritual power. And not only that, God has put all things under Jesus' feet and has given Jesus to be heard over all things here. Ultimately, why did Paul tell us this? Is that he wants to give us evidence that the gospel perspective that he had just talked about is reliable. Because we know that the problem with this world began all the way in Genesis 3, it began with the fall itself. And God's solution is then to, out of the chaos that resulted from the fall, God's solution is to bring everything back into unity again. 
as a result of the fall, there was chaos, and we ask ourselves, how long, O Lord? The psalmist keep on asking, how long, O Lord, will you set things right? And in verse 10 itself, we have God's solution, God's plan, which is to unite all things under the headship of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 22, you get the initial fulfillment of it, because God has now made Jesus head over all things. God has made Jesus head over all things. And so here, the initial fulfillment of God's plan has already begun, has already been completed. God is on the move. Aslan is on the move. Do you remember in the, the Chronicles of Narnia when Mr. Beaver said, told the children, Aslan is on the move, perhaps he has already landed, something happened. Peter suddenly felt brave and adventurous. Susan suddenly felt as though there was a delicious smell in the air and delightful music has just wafted in through the air. And Lucy, little Lucy, what did she say? She felt as though this was the beginning of the holidays, as though she had just woken up from a night and that this was the beginning of the holidays and that this was the beginning of summer. Aslan is on the move. The children had hope. God is on the move. We have hope too. We have hope because God is at work. God's initial plan of reconciling the world has already begun, all right? But he will bring it to fulfillment in one day. But again, why did Paul tell us this? Also because he wants to remind us that the evidence of the gospel here is ultimately for you all, for the benefit of the church. We read here in verse 22, he gave Christ as head over all things to the church. I prefer the NIV. The NIV says, for the church, that God gave Christ as all things for the benefit of the church. Notice that God made Jesus to be head over all things. Jesus is head over the church. Jesus is head over the cosmos. But only the church is the body of Christ. The cosmos is not the body of Christ. Only the church is the body of Christ. And when the church is the body of Christ, it shows there's a very intimate connection between Christ and the church. And Christ fills all things in all things, but only the church is the fullness of Christ. Christ fills all things in all things by that he exerts his power and reign over the cosmos itself. But in the church, he fills it in a special way because the church has been given the Holy Spirit where Christ's presence and power is manifested in a special way. So all of this that Paul has been talking about in verses 3 to 14 ultimately is for the benefit of the church. It's ultimately for the benefit of the church. The church is special. In what way is this a benefit to the church? In what way is this a benefit to the church? Ultimately, it is a benefit to the church because what happens to Jesus also happens to us. Jesus' story becomes our story. In this passage here, we read of how God raised Jesus from the dead, seated him at the right hand. In chapter 2, we see the same thing applied to us. In chapter 2, he says that God made us alive together 
not by our own, but together with Christ. God raised us up, not by ourselves, but again, together with Christ. And God seated us together with Christ. If Christ is seated in the heavenlies by Galilee, we are also seated in the heavenlies here. So all these things has been given for the benefit of the church. Here, ultimately, we ask ourselves here that everything that this has made possible is because we are connected to Jesus. We are connected to Jesus. I remember that when I was uh, sending my mom to the airport, she needed a wheelchair. All right, so we, I had one of the, you know, those uh, airport assistants put in a wheelchair, and we just went and sped up and bypassed all the long lines. But because I was with her, I also got a shortcut, right? I also got sped, and I didn't have to wait in line. Similarly for us, too, because we are with Jesus. What happens to Jesus will also happen to us. Jesus' story becomes our story, and that just as Jesus was made alive, we will be made alive. Just as he was raised from the dead, we will also be made alive. Just as Jesus was seated in the heavenlies, so also will we be seated in the heavenlies. But not only this, that's another benefit to us. And that Paul tells us that the resurrection power that God worked in Jesus is also available to us. You think about what kind of power did that? Power that is more than an atomic bomb, but power that is also made available to us. And you ask yourselves, how do we access this power? Do you feel this power in your lives? Do you feel it? And if you don't feel it, how do you access it? The power for a changed life, the change, doesn't come from art trying harder. But it comes through an encounter with the radical power that God makes available to us through the Holy Spirit. God's power is made available to us when we recognize our weakness and we cling to him in desperate faith. God's power is made available to us when we are not conformed to the patterns of this world, but that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds according to the word of God. God's power is made available to us when we are rooted in Jesus and his word. When we abide in Jesus and his word abide in us, Jesus says, ask anything and it will be given to you. When we remain in Jesus and his words, remained in us. We access the power that God has given us through his Holy Spirit. And so we make it a habit. We make it a habit to pray for a renewed perspective of the gospel so that you may know the hope, the worth, and the power we have in the gospel. A hope for the future, worth despite our past, and power for the present. And we can have confidence regarding this gospel perspective because God's reconciling work has already begun in Christ Jesus. Let me just pull out one application for us. All right. We have been working through a series and uh, 
in praying with Paul, and obviously one application, direct application for this is that we have to make it a habit to pray for this renewed perspective of the gospel itself. But when in, in a series itself, you know, that when we see Paul prays, Paul doesn't just pray for the specific issues that most of us pray for. Paul doesn't pray that somebody would get a job, that somebody would be healed. He doesn't pray that in the prayers that we have studied. But Paul prays for some of the largest structures of the Christian life itself. Now, all of this, both of them are important. Praying for the little things that concern us, they are important. But at the same time, praying also for the larger issues of our Christian faith, they are also important. So how do we do both? How do we do both? How can we incorporate the gospel perspective into our prayer lives? One of the books that I've been reading recently, or rather an audio book that I've been listening to, it's uh, this book, Praying Life by Paul Miller, which I have found to be useful. And in this book itself, he talks about making prayer cards, little index cards, all right? You could use, I, I'm more of a, I like to save trees, as I say, all right? So I put it on my uh, to-do list every day in terms of these prayer cards. But the way that you do your prayer card is in these three steps. First, write the name on the card. That's simple, right? Write the person's name on the card. But secondly, you write keywords, keywords that capture the concern and request of the person itself. You jot down keywords that really capture what you're concerned about. I think that here, don't only think about the immediate need, for example, that the surgery would go well, but also about the bigger picture of that person's influence, that person's character, that person's calling, that person's heart, that person's faith itself. Some of the questions you might ask yourself is, what are they facing? What are they feeling? What would you like to see the Spirit work in their lives? And then, how does the gospel speak to their situation? So take time to think that. And the third step is basically in terms of scripture. You put scripture to work by asking what particular scripture you want to see working in that person's life. So one example of a prayer card that I could have made is, for example, if someone I know is looking for a job, John Doe is looking for a job, this is maybe how I would put it. He needs a job. He feels that he's a failure. He's defeated. He feels frustrated and stressed. So I pray for a job, but at the same time, I remember I put in Scripture there. Scripture that my God should supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. And so I pray that we pray for a job for John, but more importantly, God, I pray that you will make him fully aware that you will supply all his needs, whether it's through a job or whether through some other means that you would supply all his needs according to his riches and glory. But at the same time, Lord, I do pray that you give him peace. I pray Philippians 4, 7 in, for him, that the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard his hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, there's nothing magical with this. There's nothing magical with the prayer cards. But by doing this, it just helps us to be a little bit more mindful. It helps us to take time about what we pray. And it reminds us to ask how Scripture speaks in the situation. In this way, we are allowing Scripture to fill our minds, to fill our prayer life, 
and to fill our thought life. In all of this, it's just one way for us to abide in Jesus and to have his words abide in us. And so I, this is something that I've started, and I intend to continue this here. It's just something for you all. It's a systematic way for you all to do your prayer life. Now, in t- taking a look at this here, Paul prays and wants and exhorts us to make it a habit to have a renewed perspective of the gospel. And so here, when you feel worthless, when you feel hopeless, when you feel powerless, pray that the Holy Spirit will make convictions of the gospel real in your life so that you see all of life through the lens of the gospel. For those of you who are new to the Christian faith and who have not experienced the power of the gospel, and you want to know how you can have this hope, how you can have this worth, how you can have this power of the gospel, talk to any of the pastors that are here. Talk to me, and we'll be glad to share how our Lord Jesus has impacted our lives. Let me pray for us here. Father, I just pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray that if they should feel discouraged, if they should feel weak, if they should feel ineffective, Lord, I do pray that your spirit would illumine the eyes of your heart so that they can truly perceive that they have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. I pray that they would recognize that they have the same resurrection power that was at work in Jesus. And that ultimately, that just as you raised Jesus from the dead, that you would also be able to revive us. Not so that we would be glorified, Lord, but so that you would be glorified. So that the power of the gospel will be manifested in our weakness so that the power of the gospel will be manifested in clays of jars, and so that ultimately all glory would be to you. Thank you for your word to us. Amen.